All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to study God's Word together, so if you would open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 1. The name of the series has been The Way of the Word. The premise is that the Word has a way about it, and the Word has this relentless way about it. It's one of the characteristic traits of God's Word is it just keeps coming. In seasons of blessing, in seasons of darkness, in seasons of doubt, the Word of God is just relentless. And the word of God summons us. We looked at calling a couple of weeks ago and the calling of Jeremiah to be a witness and testify to God's glory. And then this morning, we're gonna see that the word rules. The word rules. So if you would follow along as I read in our text, picking up where we left off last week. So Jeremiah chapter one, I'm gonna start reading in verse 10. God is speaking to Jeremiah and says these words, See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and plant. Then the word of the Lord came to me asking, What do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, I see a branch of an almond tree. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I watch over my word to accomplish it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me asking, what do you see? And I replied, I see a boiling pot, its lip tilted from the north to the south. Then the Lord said to me, disaster will be poured out from the north, that's where Babylon was, on all who live in the land. Indeed, I am about to summon all the clans and kingdoms of the north. This is the Lord's declaration. They will come and each king will set up his throne at the entrance to Jerusalem's gates. They will attack all her surrounding walls and all the other cities of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments against them for all the evil they did when they abandoned me to burn incense to other gods and to worship the works of their own hands. Now get ready, stand up, and tell them everything that I command you. Do not be intimidated by them or I will cause you to cower before them. Today, I am the one who has made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the populations. They will fight against you, but never prevail over you, since I am with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. There are awesome words here in the opening chapter of Jeremiah, I think it's an easy mistake for us to make, even as God's people, to think that the prosperity or downfall of a society is tied to or decided by its economy or by its technology or by its political leaders or by the strength of its military and, and so on. It's easy for us to make that mistake, a very this-worldly kingdom perspective, but what we learn here in Jeremiah is, no, it's the word of God that determines all the outcomes. It's the word of God that determines the destinies of all nations. It is what people do with the revealed will of God in his word that's decisive. The blueprints for human flourishing are here, and we neglect them to our own peril. We don't break the word, the word breaks us. If we try to break the word, we are broken on the word. That's kind of what Jeremiah's message brings about. We cannot neglect God's word and prosper. It's impossible. In a way, that was the message that God brought through all the prophets in the Old Testament, is this is, speak this word to my people. Turn them back in my direction. This is my, my will. These are my 
words, my wisdom for them, turn them back in my direction. You know the, um, the sound of a record player that's, that's stopped quickly, right? That kind of screeching sound? That was the effect of Jeremiah's ministry everywhere he went. Kind of the music of nominalism was playing on every record player in Jerusalem, and Jeremiah just went around just, just that kind of screeching sound. That was the effect of his ministry everywhere he went. So just back up and think about his context again. We looked at this a few weeks back when we first started the series, but what's going on, the backstory underneath Jeremiah 1 is the Assyrian Empire had been on top of the world for about three centuries, and now the Assyrian Empire was waning in its strength, and here comes Babylon. Babylon is poised to become the new global superpower in all the earth. They are the most dominant power in the world, and they're starting to bully around, and they're starting to claim more and more real estate. And in the midst of all of this, everybody's doing the kinds of things that everybody does, the usual business of international intrigue, right? Everybody's working the phones. Who can we get in political alliances? Who can we get? Egypt, can you be on our side when Babylon comes to town, right? All this stuff, forging alliances, all those things, that's what they were doing. And Israel, sadly, was no different. Israel was just as inclined to rely on political alliances and on Egypt and so forth as anybody else. And Israel was just as inclined to process the evening news as if Babylon was the biggest threat to their security, not the holy God whom they had spurned. And Jeremiah is saying, I just want you to know who the biggest problem in the world is. It's the holy God whose word you've set aside. Babylon is small fries compared to what's coming. It's the just and holy God whom you've spurned. So you enter, enter Jeremiah in chapter one and God puts his finger on Jeremiah's lips and he says, I've put my words in your mouth and they are incendiary words. Jeremiah's words are scud missiles sent into Jerusalem and he, as he speaks them, there is a, there is a shaking that is going on in the city of Jerusalem. And, and here's the thing is, Jeremiah is not just talking to the church. He's not just talking to God's people, as it were. He has a word for the nations. He is not kind of some local, provincial news reporter, news anchor on the scene in Jerusalem. He is there to talk to Babylon. He's going to talk. He's going to have a word with Damascus and Edom and Assyria and all the rest. He's going to whistle and he's going to say, come in here close. Here's what God says. And that word is going to determine the rise and fall of kingdoms. So hold your place here. We're going to come back to Jeremiah 1 in just a second. Flip over to chapter 46, just so you can see what I'm talking about. That God has a word for all the nations. Chapter 46, so you might see in your Bible something, a heading. In my Bible, there's a heading that says, Prophecies Against the Nations. So this is where Jeremiah kind of turns the camera outward and says, all you, I want you to listen because I've got a word from God for you as well. And so there's prophecies, chapter 46, you see, prophecies against Egypt. Chapter 7, just flip the pages with me. Against the Philistines. Chapter 48, against Moab. Then it continues, just more words against Ammon, Edom, Damascus. He's just going on and on and on. You know what this is? It's a hit list. It's a hit list, and it's God's hit list. And God is writing the names of these nations on a wall and he's gonna start putting X's through them. He's saying, I'm, I'm coming for you. And he saves the biggest and baddest one for last and that's Babylon herself. The mighty Babylon will fall and God spends three chapters, chapter 50, 51, and 52 saying that judgment is coming to you proud nation, you proud Babylon. 
And God even uses the image and he says, I am like a lion bursting forth from the thicket of the Jordan and I'm hunting you. It's an awesome and terrifying thing. Here's what God says if you're you're still open to that part of the Bible. Chapter 51, verse 25. God says to Babylon, the most powerful nation on earth, look, I am against you, devastating mountain. You devastate the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the cliffs, and turn you into a charred mountain. So we got three chapters, 50, 51, and 52, of imprecatory poetry. That is God allowing Babylon to see themselves on the business end of his justice for three chapters. And, And that was really would have been no shock to the community of exiles who were now in Babylon, who were from Jerusalem, but now they're in Babylon because they've been taken captive. That would have been no shock that God saves three chapters to, uh, to send heat downrange toward Babylon. No surprise, no shock there. What would have been shocking to the community of God's people in Jerusalem is all the words of denunciation that God speaks through Jeremiah to Judah which is not chapter 50 and 51 and 52. His denunciations are from chapter two through chapter 45. Judgment for the nation starts in 46 and lasts through 52. Judgment for God's people, those who associate with his name and drag it through the mud, who are equally idolatrous with the people of Babylon. Judgment comes to Jerusalem from chapters two through 45. And in a way, it really harkens to things that we read in the New Testament where the Apostle Peter says, the time for judgment has come and judgment begins at the house of God. Right, because they thought that they had diplomatic immunity. They thought that they could spurn the name of God and it would still be fine because we've got the oracles, right? We've got the prophets, we've got the priests, we've got the laborers, we've got the, the sacrificial system Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, not simply because what he had to say, but, but, but because he had to say it to family. He had to announce judgment to Judah. These were his kinsmen. So in Jeremiah chapter one, we see two pictures. The first is a picture of, of the sovereign word. The sovereign word. So if you ever learned uh, to play checkers as a kid, you remember that moment where you found out that if you made it to the very last row on your opponent's side of the board, you got to say two words, right? Remember? What were they? King me, right? And you felt so awesome when you got to the other side of the board, you said king me, and they stacked a double on there, and now you could do all kind of stuff you couldn't do before. There's a new power, right? Well, that that piece suddenly gains new abilities, right? Well, that's kind of what's happening in in verse 10 of our passage, right at the beginning of our passage, although the difference is that Jeremiah doesn't say king me. He doesn't want this new power. He doesn't want this role, but God gives it to him anyway. God kings the prophet. That's really what's going on here. He's turning a prophet into a king. Look at the language. I have, Jeremiah, appointed you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. You're going to have new powers. You're going to speak. Words are going to trip over your mouth, and nations are going to start falling. 
rising, falling. You're going to be tearing stuff down, uprooting things, destroying and demolishing. There are many moments in, in church history where I wish I could be a fly on the wall. One of them is Hugh Latimer, 16th century. He was a, a chaplain to, to the royal household. He preached directly to King Henry the eighth, and he called out Henry the Eighth's sins, and it offended the king. He preached on a Sunday morning to the king, and it was deeply offensive in, in a day where it was not safe to offend the king. And they said, you need to come back and try that again. The king did not like the word that was preached on this particular Sunday. So they said, we command you to come back next Sunday, begin with an apology, and let's do a redo on that sermon. And Latimer started his sermon the following Sunday with these words. He didn't start the sermon by reading a text. He didn't start the sermon by addressing the king. He started the sermon by addressing himself with these words. Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, Take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, do you know where you come from and whose message you bear? The great and mighty God who is all present and who beholds all your ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. And you know what Hugh Latimer did? He preached the exact same manuscript he had preached the week before. And he was burned at the stake in 1555 under Bloody Mary. There was a sense of, I speak the word and I let the chips fall. Where they may, there was a boldness to declare the word of God. Look, our God is not silent. Whether his word wants to be received or not, his word is king. And he has revealed himself in all of his glory. He has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in providence. He's revealed himself in miraculous displays of his power through redemptive history. He's revealed himself through the divinely inspired words that we have in scripture. He has revealed himself most ultimately in the incarnate word himself, Jesus Christ. And you back up to the 7th century B.C., we're about to turn over into the 6th century B.C., and how the nations respond to the words Jeremiah preaches is going to determine who rises and who falls. And how the nations in our own current time, in the fullness of time, what we do, what the world does with the incarnate word of God in Christ Jesus is going to determine all outcomes. We cannot ignore God's word with impunity. It's not possible. You see those six verbs there in verse 10? To uproot and tear down. To destroy and demolish. Now we got some good stuff. To build and plant. <laughs> this is heavily negative orientation of those verbs. I wish we could take time to see how those six verbs uh, are featured all throughout the book of Jeremiah. Those same verbs keep coming up over and over, building and planting, but tearing down, demolishing, uprooting. That language is used throughout Jeremiah's writing. It's mostly negative though, right? You see it? Uproot, tear down, destroy, demolish, build, plant. The word confronts before it builds up. I think that's a principle for us. It's still true today. The word confronts before it it builds up. That's how God's message comes to us, right? It confronts us before it builds up. You think about 
So this isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon. You think about the first preaching of the gospel after Jesus Christ ascends, pours out his spirit on the church, somebody grabs a microphone and starts preaching to an audience. And those people hear the message of the gospel preached, and what does it say happened? They were cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? There was a confrontation. There was an uprooting. There was a, this is a problem. You crucify the Lord of glory. That doesn't bode well for humanity when you put the Son of God on a cross. So many of us as believers, when you tell your story, some of the language, old school language, maybe you still use it, is I heard the gospel, and I'm telling you, I just, um, I came under conviction. Right? You ever use that phrase before? It's like I felt this sense of something's wrong. Something is deeply and profoundly wrong. And it's not outside of me. It's inside of me. There's this, there's this sense of uprooting. While, while it also feels like God is planting something new and something glorious, it feels like he's ripping something out. That's conversion. <laughs> So regeneration, a new heart does that, right? Where there's, this, there's these conflicted feelings that are occurring simultaneously. We're grieved over how we've lived and we're amazed by what God has done. It's not just the second, it's the first as well. It's repentance and faith. It's laying aside the sin that so easily entangled us and looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let me just ask you the question. Has God's word uprooted your old life so your new life can start? Because if it hasn't, I pray it will today. Pray that uprooting. Look, that's why baptism is the very first thing that happens. The very first sign and sacrament of Christian faith is a funeral. It's, an, it's a reenactment of Easter weekend. It is a tomb and a resurrection. When, when we say the word rules, it means this. If you're taking notes, we cannot flourish in our lives or as a culture while we resist the word of God. We can't do an end run around God's commands to get to the blessings, around God's glory to get to the blessings. You know, Jesus, again, this is not just stuff that's stuck there in, in the Old Testament. Jesus used very similar language. Jesus said at one point, he says, so I need you to know there's a storm coming and no one's gonna be able to stand in the storm except for those who build their lives on a rock. And who is the one who builds his life on a rock? The one who builds their life on a rock are the ones who hear these words of mine and do them will be like the one who builds their life on a rock. And when the storms come, the rock won't move. But the ones who don't hear these words and do them will be like ones who built their lives on sand. Same storm comes, and then you can't stand because you built your life on something other than the Word of God. The Word of God determines the outcomes. It's a sovereign word in that sense. So think about your own life here this morning. Are you building your life on the Word of God? Let's not think about that in the abstract. Let's just look at this past week. Are you building your life on a rock or building your life on sand? Only one will hold you up, and it's the Word of God. Now, there were three redemptive offices in the Old Testament, all of which pointed forward to Jesus, who was the ultimate fulfillment. So the prophets, the priests, and the kings. 
Jesus fulfills this perfectly, right? But when you track through the Old Testament, what do you see? You see something like this. When their sins were too great, he provided the priests. When their foes were too strong, he raised up a king. But when God became small, he'd send them a prophet. And that's what's happening in Jeremiah. God says it's 627 BC and they've done it again. They think I'm little. They, they think they can push me aside. They, they're playing games with me. They think my holiness isn't a threat to their idolatry. They think I'll overlook their oppression. I'll overlook their acts of injustice as long as they keep singing on the Sabbath. And I need you to get out there, Jeremiah, and tell them otherwise. And so God sends Jeremiah and he sends Hosea, and he sends Micah, and Malachi, and Amos. Get out there. Tell the people the way it really is. Amos. He sends Amos, and Amos says, stop. The songs don't matter. Matter of fact, God says through Amos, he says, I want you to tell the people what I'm doing while they're singing in my name. I've got my fingers in my ears because it makes me nauseous to hear them while they perform acts of injustice and brutality. Tell them what I'm doing. Look, maybe the greatest apologetic for our world today is Christians living consistently with the message of Jesus. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's why the world isn't believing, because we're not living like the Christians. Consistent with God's word. I spoke to a young lady not too long ago, and she's struggling because she has seen tremendous hypocrisy in the church and she's looking at stories of so-called Christian leaders who are rising up and they're committing acts of abuse, sexual abuse and cover-ups and all this stuff is, is going on, right? And she said, Matt, how can God endorse this kind of Christianity, the Christianity that I've seen? And I said, what if they're not the Christians? And she looked at me like I had two heads, like that was impossible to consider. And what I wanted to say is, what if that nauseating feeling you have when you look at so-called Christian leaders abusing and destroying people's lives, is God saying, welcome to my world. It's God whispering and saying, in a sense, I don't want you to be confused, my child. That's not me. I just want to draw a whole lot of daylight between the garbage you're seeing in, in what professes to be Christianity and what the real article is. Jeremiah, these are memoirs. They're not just denunciations and rebukes and, and so forth. They're memoirs. And, and at one point in Jeremiah chapter 20, we hear Jeremiah, the man himself, begging to retire. He's saying, God, I'm so tired of speaking on your behalf. I just want to be, could you pick somebody else? And he said, but your word to me was like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I grew weary in holding it back so I couldn't. <laughs> it, was, it was a word that just kept coming out of his mouth. Even though he's tired, he just keeps speaking the truth. He was a man on fire. There was a pastor who was born in 1900 and um, a British pastor, his name was W.E. Sangster, and he used to train young pastors 
and, and he would say to them, I, I want to know, I don't want to know how well you did on your test in your MDiv classes here. What I want to know is if I dropped you into the River Thames, would it sizzle? Would there be a sense of the glory of God that comes through in the way you handle his word? Would the river sizzle if I dropped you in it? Jeremiah has an incendiary word against the nominalism of Judah. And once he's done sending heat down range in chapter 45, his lips are smoking. Here we see the sovereign word in two, the God who sustains us. The sovereign word and the God who sustains us. So, so the book of Jeremiah, again, it's not just prophetic rebukes. It's not just promises of future grace. By the way, there's lots of promises of future grace tucked inside these words of judgment, right? But it includes these journal entries from Jeremiah himself where he's begging God to let him retire. You, you think about if you've ever seen the story or read the novel from Tolkien, The Fellowship of the Ring, and there's a hobbit named Frodo who is chosen to be the ring bearer. And he is to take the ring of power and bring it to Mordor, this dangerous journey to Mordor, and cast the ring of power into the fire and destroy it. And, and Frodo's response isn't, wow, I get to be that guy. It's, it's I don't want to be that guy. Here's what he says. I'm not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Pick anybody. I don't want to bear the ring of power. And Gandalf answers that question. He says this, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. Jeremiah was known by rabbis of his day and afterward he was known as the weeping prophet. Michelangelo would paint a portrait on the ceiling of Sistine Chapel and the portrait was of Jeremiah and he's in this posture of despair. His eyes are sunken down, his shoulders are hunched forward and he has his hand over his mouth. He's just got no words left to speak. He can't believe what he is seeing. There's a truth that's captured by one of my favorite authors from the 1600s, a man by the name of Richard Sibbs. And Sibbs says this, consciousness of our weakness drives us out of ourselves to him in whom our strength lies. Consciousness of our weakness drives us out of ourselves to him in whom our strength lies. Jeremiah feels his weakness. For 40 years, he feels his weakness. So there's this coronation that happens in verse 10. You see that? I wish I had time to unpack verses 11 through 16 because there's these visions that God gives. He says, what do you see? I see an almond tree. What do you see? I see a boiling pot. Basically, just very quickly, basically that's God saying to Jeremiah, it's gonna feel like you're about to waste 40 years of your life. It's gonna feel like you're talking to a brick wall because nobody's gonna listen. But I'm just telling you here on the front end, Jeremiah, talk for me for 40 years, and I'm telling you, I'm gonna fulfill every word you speak. You're not wasting your breath. You're not, you're not preaching a message of foolishness. It's gonna go down just like you say it's gonna go down. I'm using you, Jeremiah, 
to uproot and to tear down. Tear down what? What's, what's being torn down in Jeremiah 2 through 45? Centuries of apostasy. Centuries of false worship. And God says, I want to do a new thing. God is going to talk about the new covenant in the book of Jeremiah. But before we start building, we got some stuff to tear down. You and me, Jeremiah, we got some stuff to tear down. And oddly enough, God says, Jeremiah, I want you to tell the people that the demolition crew that I'm hiring to tear that stuff down is the Babylonian Empire. They're the ones who are going to come knock on the eastern gates. And they're here because I whistled for them. We're tearing down idols. See verse 17? There's a commissioning. (laughs) Buckle up, right? Get ready. Stand up and tell them everything I command you. Look at these words. Do not be intimidated by them or I will cause you to cower before them. What a fascinating statement that is, right? Jeremiah, I'm going to set it up this way. If you cave into fear, it only gets harder. I'm not building the prophetic car with a reverse. You're going forward. There's park and there's drive. That's the only options. You're not going backward, right? You think about fear, the fear of man in your life. The scripture says in in the Proverbs, that the fear of man is a snare. That retreating leads to more retreating and standing leads to more standing. And God says, you're going to be the person who's standing and you keep standing and you keep standing. Because if you start retreating, that's only going one way. I'm building you to stand. Notice what he says in verse 18. Today, Jeremiah, I'm the one who has made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. In other words, God is saying, let them come. (laughs) They cannot stop the word of God. What's the point for us? Courage and strength come from the Lord. Courage and strength come from the Lord. After he says, I've made you a bronze wall, an iron pillar, and a fortified city, look at verse 19. They will fight against you, but never prevail since I am with you to rescue you. It's, it's sort of like an Old Testament version of what we hear from the last man standing in the New Testament, namely the Apostle John, who says what to the church? He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The whole world will push against you and you'll be an iron wall. So Brook Hills, two things. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is an awesome, powerful, globally relevant word. God has given us, here we stand in the line of the prophet Jeremiah. You and me as followers of Jesus, we stand in the tradition of the prophets, right? Nations and kingdoms will rise and fall based on this gospel based on what they do or don't do with this Jesus. But friends, our faithfulness is in the proclaiming, not in the success, not in the receiving of whoever's on standing in front of us. Our faithfulness is in the proclaiming. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. And second, watch for God's promises. I wish I had more time to unpack this picture in verse 11. You see in verse 11, God says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he says, I see a branch of an almond tree 
Right, so that, 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 that can easily be lost on us because we weren't born in Anatoth, three miles north of Jerusalem, many of us, right? Um, but we have, in our culture, wherever you grew up, there were signs of the end of winter and the beginning of spring, right? The robin. Or if, if you grew up in Washington, D.C., was the cherry blossom. That was the first thing that springs, that spring is on the way, look at the cherry blossoms, right? Whatever it might be, daffodils in England, you see the daffodils blooming, and now you know winter is coming to an end, and here comes spring. And, and that's, that's what was going on here in this text, was if you were born and raised in Anatoth, the first sign of the end of winter and the beginning of spring is the blossoming of the almond tree. And he says, watch, they even called it the watching tree. And he says, watch the watching tree, and know I'm watching to fulfill my word. It's a play on words in the original Hebrew. As truly as the blossoming almond tree announces the coming of spring, Jeremiah, I will fulfill every word I speak through you. You know, some of you here as believers this morning, you are, um, you're watching for the end of winter. You'd give anything to see the first sign of the coming of spring because it has been a dark night. The Puritans would call it the dark night of the soul. Some of you are walking through what you might call the dark night of the soul. Just, just give me just some sign that this won't last forever. I love what author Phil Riken takes from this. He says, even when it seems dormant, God's word is waiting to burst into flower." Discouraged Christians, tired Christians, remember the promises of God. What, what promises are you talking about, Matt? The promise that all of our sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. The promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, and so he's given us his Holy Spirit. The promise that if we ask for wisdom, he gives it liberally and without reproach, so let's ask in faith. The promise that we will see his face and he will undo all of our sadness. The promise that he is preparing a place for us, new heavens and a new earth and creation will burst forth into song and you and me with it. Those promises will be fulfilled, dormant as it looks, dark as it looks around us. Right? And some of those promises are already blossoming in our lives, right? Gospel daffodils in the church of Jesus Christ, gospel cherry blossoms seen in our fellowship together. But friends, all of them will burst into full flower. We just gotta keep watching. We have to keep waiting. And we're called to keep proclaiming the word that God has given us.